Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest is my very own producer and host of Sissy That Talk Show with Joseph Shepard. It's Joseph Shepard. Yeah, we're going to talk about lots and lots of wonderful things, uh, challenging topics to discuss, but worth the conversation. I hope you learn a lot from this episode or feel seen or heard or represented in this episode because Joseph gets very, very candid with me. Joseph is used to bearing all, and you're going to hear about it today on Hijinks. So hunker down, buckle up, and sink your teeth into some brand new Hijinks. <laughs> M. Oh. M. Mom. Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today I'm going to start the episode a little differently. Um, As you all know, if you've been listening for a while now, I have just made my Broadway debut in the long-running Chicago, the musical. Uh, I'm playing Mama Morton. It has been a dream come true. And, you know, the experience has kind of blown my mind because you you wait for something for so long or you, you kind of build up... Um, anticipation for something for so long and you convince yourself what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like and then you get there and it's so much simpler but also so much more than you could have ever imagined. (laughs) Let me tell you what this experience has been like. Opening night, I was a bundle of nerves but we had just the most amazing, generous audience, and the show was on fire that evening. Now, if you are familiar with theater, um, you may have heard of the term the second night curse, or the sophomore slump, or the curse of the second night. Lots of people call it lots of different things. 
The idea essentially is nothing can compare to the energy and love and excitement of opening night. So no matter how good the show is second night, there's just no way it can live up to opening night. And you feel like maybe it's gotten bad overnight or you're not doing as well. You start to get insecure. Maybe you get in your head and you flub a line. Well, I am used to the idea of the second night curse and I actively try to fight it. However, in this circumstance, (laughs) the second night, of course, was very, very different from the first night. And it was really easy for me to get in my head that evening. The way that I got out of my head that evening was looking to the other people that I trust and respect in this field and seeing how calm they were. They all told me, mistakes happen. We've done the show hundreds of times, and we make mistakes still to this day. Everyone reassured me that part of being a pro at doing what you do is being able to get past the mistake and not let it ruin the whole evening. Being able to kind of get over those little flubs and those little moments and still deliver an amazing show that I was proud of was something that I have had to work on my entire life. Mistakes kind of snowball for me. If I have one mistake, I'm sitting there thinking about the mistake and it causes a second mistake and possibly a third. So it's <laughs> so things can kind of, you know, escalate in my mind and affect the rest of my performance. Something I've had to practice is staying present in the moment. Whatever trick I might use in that moment, whatever person I might check in with, changes from show to show, from moment to moment. But being present is the inevitable goal and helps me get over those funky moments. So that's night two. (laughs) The reason I wanted to talk about this today When you dream about something, leave room in your dream for reality. I was so scared of doing anything wrong because I was afraid that to make a mistake or to have an issue would make me seem like I wasn't cut out for this. Like I just kind of fell backwards into this and now I'm revealing that I don't actually have the goods. What I, learned is, what I learned opening week instead is that I was able to show that I am cut out for this by how I handled the obstacles that were thrown my way. I think I convinced myself that for the experience to be what I dreamed it to be, it had to go off without a hitch. Zero flaws, zero mistakes, everything had to be perfect the entire time. But just like I say in the holiday special to Ben de la Creme, (laughs) we get to define what perfect is for ourselves. And for me, learning how to overcome certain obstacles without beating myself up, without spiraling into too deep of a depression. (laughs) Trust me, I had some glum moments and Michael could tell you that it put a little bit of a strain on my psyche, but it could have been much worse. 
And in the past, it has been much worse. What makes this experience perfect for me is that my colleagues trusted me enough knowing that I would find a way through it and that I trusted myself enough knowing that I would find a way through it. So I encourage you to chase your dreams and I want you to celebrate when those dreams come true. But leave room in your dreams for reality and remember that you get to define perfect for yourself. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now I would like to introduce you to my guest for today. We are joined by TV personality, my producer, and host of the new mom late night show, Sissy That Talk Show with Joseph Shepard. It's Joseph Shepard. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Jinx. (laughs) Joseph. um, Okay. We need to start right away. Mm-hmm. I did not know that you were a zombie on Walking Dead. You were the first <laughs> male zombie killed in the first episode of the first iteration of The Walking Dead. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about this experience. And how come you've never brought it up to me before? I don't know. That's kind of like one of those little things I have in my back pocket that I love like sharing when it's like random, random tidbits. Um I went to Atlanta for school, and during that time frame, there was a few movies and TV shows that were coming through, and I got a phone call from one of my friends, and she was like, hey, there's this zombie show. I don't think it's going to do that well, but I'm casting (laughs) zombies for it, so do you want to get, like, shot in the head? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. And she was like, it's going to be, like, three hours of prosthetic makeup. And I was like, let's go for it. So did that, and I had to, like, have this funnel in my mouth that held the blood. And then from there, it was this long cord that went down, and then there was, like, somebody who walked with me the whole time. And then once I got shot, they – slammed their foot on this like pump and then blood just shot all out of my mouth. It was (laughs) was the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Practical effects in theater and film never cease to amaze me. Like I am so impressed at the clever ways Mm -hmm. people make magic happen in real life. Any other exciting um, or, um, I don't know, terrifying things from the set of The Walking Dead? Did you see, who, who played Rick? Rick, Rick, Rick. Um, who played? Andrew, the, Andrew Lincoln. Oh, he was so hot. He was so oh hot. <laughs> and Glenn, oh, he was so hot. <laughs> oh, the, um, show, the show was everything the show. at the time. <laughs> I know. And, you know, it's just, it's so funny how quickly things can change in Mm -hmm. what we're interested in watching. 
Um, because right now it's all witches and vampires. I mean, it's always zombies will never go away. But I, I'll, I'll admit, like, I loved The Walking Dead. And unfortunately, even though I know it's zombies, even though I know it's fantasy, I'm just currently at a place in my life where I have a hard time watching anything with too much gun violence. And mm. um, it was hard to get past the first episode of Squid Game. I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad that I pushed through, but it was really hard. Do you find that with entertainment at all? Um, are there certain things that you're just turned off from watching right now? You know, you said that, and I tried watching The Last of Us, like, last weekend or the weekend before, and that was kind of, like, the same thing with the zombies and, like, the shooting and everything, and about 45 minutes in, I was like, you know, I don't think this is for me, like, at this present moment. So mm-hmm. I agree with everything that you said full 100% because there are a lot of things that I used to kind of like at one point that now it's as we learn the world of politics and we learn the world of what the things that are around us that I then kind of, I, I wouldn't say filter myself, but I guess I do. I filter kind of what content that I watch because you can only do so much to not um, drive anxiety to yourself, you know? Yeah. I think, I think a big part is, um, just like how it makes us feel in the moment, you know, like I can sus- suspend my disbelief. I understand guns are a thing that exists in our world. Stories that involve guns are going to happen, you know, and like in Squid Game, I was kind of thinking, well, to, to exemplify the circumstances, the circumstances and the stakes that they are currently in, um, I, I understand the usage of guns in that context. And at the same time, it's really hard to watch it and sit there and be like, wow, we're kind of desensitized to the mm-hmm. idea of, being pe- of, of people being shot dead. I even had to think about this in Chicago. And I actually think, you know, it's, it's live theater. They handle guns differently in the show. There's, um, it's very stylized so that it, so that it, feels cartoony. And mm-hmm. for me, that's like the one of the better options we have <laughs> at addressing it, you know? Like, um, make it stylized so we get the point, but we don't have to be tortured for no reason in the middle of an otherwise, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. There's theater that's meant to do that. And then there's theater that uh, stays on the lighter side. I think Chicago and our production is quite edgy, but it's still, you know, it's a comfortable show to watch. It's just very entertaining. <laughs> I um, I loved watching you uh, ignite the happy birthday for your brother outside <laughs> of the theater. Was was he embarrassed at all in that? Um. No, I don't think he was embarrassed. I mean, he, he walked he, first. He dropped his his drink cup, and then <laughs> just stumbled over to me and hugged me and cried the entire time. But I don't think he was embarrassed. He's <clears throat> both my brothers. Um, you know, they're not in performance, but they both love the spotlight mm-hmm. in their own ways. All three of us, and it's very funny because my mom is rather introverted and gets very, very shy. And uh, my youngest brother and I have different fathers. So 
I don't know where we all get it from precisely. I don't, I don't know. But all three of us, at the drop of a hat, like my youngest brother introduced me, asked me seconds before, can I introduce you? And I was like, what are you talking about? And then he goes, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, <laughs> presenting Jinx Monsoon. And I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> Do you have siblings, Joseph? I do. I have one younger brother. We're five years apart, um, and he is literally my best friend, which I think is the coolest thing. It never was that way when we were little and younger, but he has become my biggest supporter. He is the biggest, um, sh- biggest, straightest guy who just <laughs> got into Drag Race within the past year, and uh. he is... I don't know, just, just having the support. I think that that is the biggest thing ever, especially when it's somebody that's, like, so close to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that uh, as kids, there's so many different circumstances. Me and my middle brother, I wouldn't say we got along through most of, we got along when we were very young, Mm-hmm. And then, and then the middle years <laughs> between adolescence and adulthood, <laughs> there was a lot of tension. And then me and my youngest brother have always been super close, I think, because the age difference was far enough away. Um, and I practically raised my youngest brother, so we were very, very close um, and remain very close. But, um, my sister, for instance, you know, we weren't raised in the same household and we saw each other frequently as children, but didn't get a chance to develop much of a relationship. Um, and as adults now, we're working on developing that relationship. And of course, it's not like we're strangers or anything. We're not starting a <laughs> square one, but we've been actively, um, you know, being a bigger part of each other's lives. And it's been just lovely to remember. I've also got a fantastic sister. <laughs> I've got a really cool <laughs> fucking sister. She's painting the fence um, at Monsoon Manor. And um, she she's the one who puts tinsel in my hair when I get tinsel put in my hair. It's, yeah, siblings are fun. You also... Um, in my notes that you wrote for me. <laughs> Look, while we're talking about family, let's talk about um, you have a queer parent. I do. I don't. I don't know anything about what it's like to have a queer parent. So tell me, what's it like having a queer parent? Um, so my parents were married for, I guess, 25 years, um, as a straight couple. And then my parents split when I was, I guess, 20. And the way that they split was my brother found their divorce papers in the printer at home. And he started (laughs) freaking out and it was Christmas break and he told me. And so... This was the point, too, where I had just come into, like, discovery of my own, and I hadn't told my parents or anybody that I was gay yet, and one night, my dad was downstairs, and I was like, so, you and mom are getting a divorce? And he was like, how did you know that? And I go, well, you were pretty stupid because you left divorce papers in the printer, and I was like, but since you guys are getting divorced, I would like to say I'm gay, and... Mm. 
he accepted it and he was very sweet about it with like my first um, boyfriend. He was the same way. And then one night after my parents were divorced, he took me to his favorite Mexican restaurant. He got one of the (laughs) big jumbo margaritas and he chugged that thing in two seconds. And he looked at me and he was like, do you care if I date anybody? And I was like, oh, I don't care. I was like, you you know, you can date a Helen, a Mary. And for some <laughs> reason I said, or a Fernando. And my dad <laughs> looks at me and goes, well, his name isn't Fernando. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So that was my first introduction um, that my father was gay. However, like there were moments when I was 12 or 13 where like, I found gay porn on our lap, like our home laptop. (laughs) And I was like, wait, I didn't look this up. Like, who would do that? So, like, there were, like, little hints and stuff. But, um, yeah, he came out when I was about 20, 21. So that was um, almost 10 years ago. And it's been a growing and a learning experience because I think a part of me was also very nervous and sad in – if and how my mom finds out, will she think that he never loved her? Mm-hmm. And that was just something that resonated in my heart because I love my mom to death. But mm-hmm. it was just like, what what would that feel like? Because at the end of the day, I know that you aren't you know, fully yourself in a marriage for 25 years. And I know the times were completely different. So I understand both sides. But at the same time, I just care about, you know, my mother and how she feels. So it kind of like was a a very interesting feeling. But I think in the end, um, it's made us all a lot closer. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a very lovely story. Um, that's, I can't imagine, you know, because I wouldn't say that I felt alone in my family. Like um, mm-hmm. uh, my mom you know, she, she had queer friends my whole childhood. It's not like I never met, uh, I'm not someone who grew up in an isolated area and didn't meet my first queer person until, (laughs) sorry, my first fellow queer person. It makes it sound like a sighting, like a bird watching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, You know, it wasn't like some people who don't meet their fellow queer people until college, you know. I I like, I grew up knowing queer people. And um, my aunt, who is like a mother to me, is not not queer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, And then my youngest brother came out to me when I was in college, when I think he was about 13, there's a lot of anxiety about that, um, mm. which I can't, uh, I can't imagine would would be the same when a parent comes out to you. I was worried that I influenced his decisions, you know, oh. being as like kind of a parent and guardian, and that was that was the fucking bigots out there. That was their language mm-hmm. getting into my head, thinking that I my like personality could influence my brother's sexuality. I mean, he was young and I, I, I really was thinking like, I think I told him, I didn't say the words, it's a phase, but I think I told him, I'm really glad you felt comfortable to tell me that 
you're very young. Remember that you can change your mind as many times as you want in your life when it comes to your sexuality. So just keep being responsible about the decisions you make with whomever you're making them with. And all I thought in my brain was, people are going to think I turned my brother gay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, did your father express any fears or anxieties about that in terms of your queerness in comparison to his? No. Um, he, you know, has said that my coming out and just seeing how I am has made him become more of who he is which I think is exciting in some way that I kind of had the confidence maybe at the age that he, you know, had wanted to come out, but he didn't. So I think that he, him and I grew a lot closer over that. So, yeah. You saying that, it kind of reminds me, in college, I had a professor who at my end of the year conference um, said, uh, seeing me live so, you know, colorfully and loudly and mm-hmm. proudly, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said it inspired him to do so more in his own life. And um, he, you know, like I think the next year he competed in the <laughs> Cornish drag show with some of the students. <laughs> and... Um, uh, someone in uh, the crew right now um, in Chicago uh, was telling me, you know, he was kind of talking about, he's watching Drag Race season five for the first time. He didn't want to watch it before I was there because he wanted to meet me in person first. Aww. Then he wanted to start watching it and get to know my drag. And he's a drag performer as well and in the Imperial Court system. And um, so... Um, <laughs> Rose. Rose is her name. And she calls me Rose and I call her Rose. And we <laughs> just everyone's Rose. It's one of those things. <laughs> and she was kind of telling me that, you know, she's like, I wish I had the kind of things that you had growing up, um, you know. And I had to tell, I told her because I, I kind of saw her, you know, she had the frustration on her face. And I was like, you know, you did the best with the circumstances that you had and you still wound up exactly where you were meant to be. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we all do the best with our circumstances. But what's really interesting is we talk a lot about the people who inspire us. And I don't think we think enough that young people have the power to inspire the older generations as well. You know, Um, I know there's a lot of intergenerational conflict at large, but in the queer community right now, especially with the people who paved the way and then the people who are trying to carry the torch now, you know, especially around language and certain concepts and certain structures that we're trying to tear down. Uh, There's been friction in our community, but I think we need to also acknowledge that there's a lot of back and forth in terms of inspiration as well. And Mm -hmm. that, (laughs) I mean, who, who are those, um, those like um, five or six um, gentlemen of a certain age. What are they called? The the old gays. Oh, the old gays. <laughs> oh, <there's... laughs> I love old Does, gays. Doesn't that just make you so happy to see mm-hmm. like, because they probably didn't get a lot of the things that they're doing as their as their content is 
is fun to watch like the older generation get to do the things that they probably never thought a queer person would be celebrated doing. Yes. (laughs) I mean, they met Um, Drew Barrymore. At the end of the day, I I would love to meet Drew Barrymore. (laughs) Yeah. Do we all get to meet Drew Barrymore once we hit a certain age? Is it just like, <laughs> does well, it come Well, hey, Jinx, <laughs> well, we need to just pop you right over to her show right across the street where, from wherever you are. <laughs> Trust me, I've been knocking on her door every other day. <laughs> Drew, open the window. There's a window. <laughs> wait, wait. Speaking, speaking of things that are around you in New York, have you been to Empanada Mama yet? I've had Empanada Mama. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, good. As long as you've had it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, oh, there was one last thing I wanted to say about having queer family members or wanted to ask you about. Um, with me and my brother, because of our age difference and because of Grinder being what Grinder is, um, it has been my perpetual fear that eventually we will have hooked up with the same person. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> Okay, no, um, that has not happened yet. However, my dad is currently dating somebody whose name is Joseph, and they've been dating for see, literally, I believe, two years. So um, I do find that bizarre. See, because of my brothers and my father, I have never even entertained the idea of serious relationships with uh, Jason's, Jeremy's, or Jacob's. And... <laughs> I do have a cousin, Michael, who I was raised with, who was kind of like a big brother to me. And I really fought, like, I mean, my husband's name is Michael, and I it really bugged me at first, but I was too in love with him to let it stand in the way. But if his name had been Jason, we would have had to have a serious talk. Because <laughs> I cannot date someone with the same name as my father. I, I, I just, I can't, you know? Know thy limits, right? <laughs> exactly. No, 100%. <laughs> So um, you were born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and now you live in L.A. Tell me about that shift. Oh, well, Memphis was a very, I was brought up Southern Baptist, very conservative, very um, all of the morals and values. I feel like I know Southern Baptist, but Mm -hmm. can you like, can you just for all of our listeners, what is um, unique and specific to Southern Baptist compared to other other sects of Christianity? I believe that Southern Baptist is just a little bit more, I believe that they believe that they have a little bit more heart than other people, if that makes mm. any sense. Um, and everything is a little bit more, I guess you would say community driven. It feels more like an experience, I guess you would say, you know, everybody in the church. I feel like other denominations um, of Christianity are kind of a little bit more open, but because of the fact that you're in the middle of like a small town, you kind of know everybody, your Mm -hmm. pastor is probably, you know, the person right down the street and just everything's a little bit more, you're getting judged a lot harder, I guess you would say too, because the people that you are around, you are around for a majority of your life. Heard. Okay. And where does it fall 
on the conservative scale of Christianity? Oh, oh, as conservative as you can get. Like okay. I So you've got the you've got the perks of being part of a community. Mm-hmm. And and as we know as queer people, community is everything. Community mm-hmm. can lift us up and protect us and save us and there's a be- there's lots of beautiful things about being part of a community. But then you're part of a community that's extremely conservative, and it sounds like you've known you were queer for some time in your life, and that had to have been a really um, tricky tightrope you were walking. Oh, it was it was awful because when I remember I was probably ten or eleven years old, and I was in the car, and my mom picked me up from school, and I literally just felt this inclination to ask, but I said. Um, what would you do if I were to be gay? And my mom looked at me and she put her finger out and she said, you will never be gay. She was like, don't ever put that out into the atmosphere. And Mm -hmm. I got so nervous and I was so afraid in that moment. And then it was just a bunch of like repressed feelings. And I remember I, I was going into a brand new school my freshman year, um, of high school and I joined the theater group and I was just so happy and I was like living life and this girl looks at me and she was like you're gay if you don't know it yet and I was like oh my gosh and then it became like oh you're the theater gay and I was like who am I as an individual but um that you know got my my hand was always slapped if I had my wrist out my mom mm. was not for any of that um there was also a lot of racism, especially within um, a particular side of my family. I remember that my mom took me out of my um, grandparents' house for a few years because they loved using the N-word. And my mom was like, you're not going to put my son around that. So it became, she tried to, you know, shelter me in that way, which I love her for, but I kind of wish that the same sheltering would have happened from the gay area because when I did come out, she didn't talk to me, I think for about two and a half, three years, I was told I was going to hell. I was went through all of that. And then when I told you that I'm really close with my brother now, my mom had an influence on my brother at that time because he was a teenager and this is when Tumblr was a thing. So Mm. I wasn't hearing anything from my mom. My brother kind of cut me off and I didn't understand why. And I went online and I found my brother's Tumblr account and he had this whole post about me and how I came out as gay and that I'm going to hell and it's the devil's mission and blah, 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 blah. So I didn't hear from any of them for a while. And then seeing that post from my brother, I was just in complete shock. But he's come around, which is the great thing. And my mom has come around, which is the great thing. And People always do say it gets better within time. I think that that is a very misconstrued thing. I think that it can get better in time. Yeah. And it's always a positive thing to think that way. But I think you also have to be realistic and acknowledge that you are good on your own. And if your parents or your friends or whoever come around, they'll come around. But you can't be waiting on pens and needles for it to happen. Yeah, and that's why we create chosen families and mm-hmm. and why community is so important. Um, as we were talking about, 
I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, well, my first is, um, what does it feel like to have someone you've loved your whole life tell you you're going to hell? Oh, um, I will say that it was very difficult. And the reason why my my mom was a little bit more difficult than anybody is because my mom is epileptic. And so when I, my first big memory of my mom was I was five years old. My brother was just born. I was watching cartoons with my dad and I hear a thud in the kitchen. And mm. it was my mom seizing with foam coming out of her mouth. I had never seen anything mm. like that before, but that's the first memory that I actually have my mom's. And then every five years or so, it happened again. I remember... Mm -hmm. I was 10, I called 911, and the lady on the other line was like, oh, okay, ma'am, we'll send somebody over. And I was like, ma'am, why? <laughs> um, so the thing that sucked is that during my teenage years, the doctors put my mom on some meds that she should not have been on, which mm -hmm. ended up turning her very bipolar-esque mm -hmm. and very, she became very gung-ho in her Christian values. And it became so, so, so much stronger. Um, and I kind of lost the mom that I grew up with, which hurt me. And then hearing her tell me I'm going to hell and I'm not going to be good enough and that I've changed. Oh, if I heard the word that I've changed any more times, I was like, I haven't changed at all. I'm the same person. But mm -hmm. it absolutely destroyed me. It destroyed me because you are so close with somebody and they're the people that love you first. They're supposed to be the people that, you know, support you and love you and, you know, give you that acceptance. And I think that I was searching for that acceptance, but I wasn't getting it, which made me come down a lot harder on myself. Yeah. I find this, I'm, thank you for sharing. First of all, thank of you for sharing your experience. And I hope that anyone listening who's been through a similar experience feels a little bit, uh, a little bit less alone after hearing your story. Um, I was talking, I don't want to spill anyone's tea, but I was talking with someone recently about someone in their life who had been a protector and taken care of them. And then when they came out to this person, you know, feeling safe with this person, this person told them, they were going to hell. And it's really stuck with me. And I just think about, I've been very, very lucky. I mean, no one I care about has told me I'm going to hell. And I don't even know, at this point in my life, I don't know that I believe in hell. I don't know, I haven't fully, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine not knowing what happens after, mm -hmm. you know. I'm kind of like that's where I'm at. I don't know what happens after, and I'm fine with that, and I'm not on a quest to, excuse me, and I'm not on a quest to figure that out. But I do remember when I was kind of indoctrinated by the concept of hell and indoctrinated by the religion I was raised in, and I was dating someone who was completely atheist, and one night I told him I was sad because if everything was true, his disbelief 
meant he might go to hell and then I wouldn't see him in heaven. And he laughed at me and he said, well, I don't believe in hell, so that doesn't mean shit to me. You know, like he was very much like that about it. And I kind of realized then then and there, like, oh, that's not really a nice thing to say say to someone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I realized in that moment, and I'm so glad it wasn't worse or more traumatic, but I bring all this up because if you are someone listening right now, if you have ever told someone they're going to hell at a time when you believed in hell or they believed in hell, I highly encourage you, reach out to that person and apologize, mm-hmm. especially if you're a parent. If you, like, um, I, I, I could never, I could never understand how a parent could turn on a kid over something like their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And... And then hearing your story, I can't understand why a person could be able to see that racism is wrong, but homophobia somehow is, is fine. Correct. It's it's really hard for me to get in. I want to understand the how how someone could be okay with that hypocrisy in themselves, and I, I don't understand it, but. I, I asked these questions so that I might be able to better understand it. Um, but all of that said, I'm really glad things are on a different page with you and your mother and you and your brother. And I certainly, from working with you and knowing you, um, I don't feel like you hold back any of your queerness today. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that <laughs> it didn't prevent you from um, following the life and career that you've had. Speaking of which, um, we know you from your work on the Mom Network and um, I'm sure many people remember um, Exposed. Yeah. <laughs> that was when you and I first interacted, that um, mm-hmm. um, lengthy, candid interview that also, oh, God, that stupid fucking lip sync story. I just, <laughs> it's like, I love detox, but can't we have some mystique? <laughs> can't we have some <laughs> mysteries? <laughs> anyway, Um <laughs> So before um, your work in the recent queer entertainment realm, you've also worked um, on The View, Rachel Mm. Ray, The Bachelor. What jobs did you have on these shows and what were those experiences like? Um, Rachel Ray was my first experience in, I guess you would say, professional television. Um, I interned at Rachel Ray, and that was a wonderful experience until the very end, and there were some issues which I've gone to figure out. A lot of the issues that I have had in any type of job have been resulted in, I guess you would say, is kind of like... Once I figured out that I was autistic, the reason why I was getting in trouble at jobs made sense to me. So mm. Mm. there were certain social situations and social cues and things that I just got, got in trouble with, Rachel Ray, which I just had no idea about. Um, can you can you cite one that yes. you feel comfortable sharing? So <laughs> we um so At Rachel Ray, of course, since we were interns, we were assigned different jobs, and one of the jobs is every Tuesday, we would have to get all of Rachel's mail and go through the mail. (laughs) And 
you know, see like if there's anything that they potentially want to feature on the show or if it's going to Rachel or if it's getting like thrown out. And I opened this box one day and there were these, (laughs) there were these honey bear jars and this lady Uh had painted them and made them into coin banks. And I thought that they looked hilarious. And so what I did is I took them and I started placing them into actual producers, executive producers, um, putting them into their desk. I don't know why I thought that this was funny. And I was just like, (laughs) I put these things into their desk. And then this was the time that Vine was around. And I thought it would be the greatest idea to have this bear jar come up over the toilet. Don't know why. And as like somebody was like in the restroom or whatever. And so we were recording this vine myself and this other girl. And basically an executive producer came into the women's restroom was like, what in the world are you doing in the women's restroom? And so it was just a whole, like these things that seem very minuscule in that I thought that they were nothing were actually big Mm. deals. And, um, yeah, so it was a lot of moments like that where I look back now and I'm like, okay, I realized that I was not the best in this type of social situation <laughs> or why am I in the, the women's bathroom with a honey bear scaring people? Like what, what am I doing? Um, I don't know but, if it's just because of the life I've led, but none of that sounds crazy to me. Good, good. I'm glad it doesn't. I remember just being heartbroken because they like were threatening my internship, and then what? that was crazy. Um, but but after that, yeah, I worked at the View. I worked at the View um, as an audience coordinator, so I was responsible for all the little people in the seats. And booking them and telling them, oh, we're so sorry. There's, you know, it's at full capacity and having mm-hmm. old ladies scream at you because they wanted to see Barbara Walters or Whoopi Goldberg. Um, yeah. And so that's prepared you for working with drag queens now. Let's talk about your um, diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, You were diagnosed at age 29, which that's, you've had some life under your belt at that point. (laughs) Tell me what that diagnosis did for you and how it's impacted your life since your diagnosis. Um, I was diagnosed because back when COVID started, my boyfriend and I moved in together and he just started noticing a lot of the habits and the way that I kept myself and how quiet and to myself I was. And I would have tantrums and there are all these moments. And so we went to Palm Springs with some of his friends and I'm not a person for big group situations. Um, and I felt in that whole trip to Palm Springs, everybody else was choosing something to do. This person got to choose the food. This person got to do this. We got, if we had an activity, it was this person's idea. And I felt like I didn't get any ideas in. And Mm. I randomly one night was like, let's all go skinny dipping in the pool And I dropped all of my clothes. I ran out to the pool. I jumped in and nobody joined me. (laughs) And I threw a bitch fit. 
Like I oh was in gosh. the pro- I was in the pool. I was like naked. crying. Yes, I was naked <laughs> in the pool crying. I I didn't understand. Everybody was like, "No, we don't want to come in there." Like, "No." And then my boyfriend basically was like, "You just made a decision for everybody and you wanted them to do what you wanted to do, but you didn't even like take the time to even figure out if they wanted to do it or whatever." And I was so like, "Well, this person cooked food and this person did whatever. So like, why can mm-hmm. I not have what I want? Why can, why is nobody doing what I want? And that turned into multiple tantrums and multiple moments. And then he watched uh, an Amy Schumer documentary and Amy mm. Schumer's um, husband is on the spectrum. And he started noticing that every single fight that we were getting into or every single moment that didn't make sense was extremely relatable to him being Amy Schumer and myself being the husband. So he was like, I'm not trying to be rude and saying anything. I think that maybe you should get checked out. I do think that you potentially could be on the spectrum. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't take it well at first. And then after that, I went and got tested and it was a long process and multiple interviews and um, different types of tests and things that I had to do. And then I was diagnosed and I remember standing outside of the doctor's office and just bawling my eyes out because I felt like I, for the first time, could understand who I was as an individual. I think that I had understood who I was as a gay person. And I think I understood who mm. I was like that, but I had never been able to actually relate to myself and be like, you know what? This is who I am. And yeah. once I started looking more into it and watching more videos, even of just social media people who have um, autism as well, it was just nice seeing somebody be like, oh my gosh, I relate to you because I have never in my life like yeah. kind of looked at a TV show or movie and been like, I relate to you. So having those moments has just been, I guess, gob- I've been like gobsmacked. It's been like all, it's been amazing just being able to finally feel comfortable in my skin, I guess you would say. That's Really wonderful, Joseph. I'm really happy to hear about that experience for you. Um, So many things come to mind while you were talking, and I'd like to share some thoughts if you don't mind. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Because I feel like I learned a lot, and I can see parallels between this and other situations that have nothing to do with autism but have everything to do with knowing yourself. Um, (laughs) First of all, um, I want to say thank you again for sharing such a candid story for anyone listening who needed to hear that or benefits from hearing another person's experience so that they know they're not alone in what they've been through. So thank you, Joseph. Um, I have someone in my life, uh, again, not spilling anyone's tea, who wonders... You know, I think a lot of us, when we hear about things, our first thought through our head is, I wonder if that applies to me, you know? <laughs> and in most cases, if you have the wherewithal to, you know, like, it's the thing um, my therapist has said to me, if you're worried about being a sociopath, you're probably not a sociopath, <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac, so it's like every session I'm like, do you think I'm this? Do you think I'm this? And and oftentimes the answer is, 
if you are this concerned about it, you know, chances are, you know, <laughs> you're not um, actually dealing with it. Um, but, you know, you can always look into things and you can always um, keep an open mind about mm-hmm. what might be um, leading to certain things in your life. But uh, a friend of mine has a, has a hunch or a, or a theory that they might be on the spectrum and they also said, well, I've gotten to this point in my life. If I am, it's not going to change anything to know that I am, um, you know. Uh, and I kind of agreed with them. I was like, you know, yeah, if, if everything's working, what's going to change if you know this thing or not? Mm-hmm. But hearing your story and then thinking about some things I've been through recently. So when I hear your story, it sounds like, you were having, um, you you were frustrated with certain things in your personal life. Mm-hmm. You looked into something, and now that you have the knowledge that you have, you are able to incorporate this into your life so that this quote-unquote obstacle can be worked with rather than against. Yes, and I 100% exactly what you said, and I also think that <clears throat> at the end of the day, it's also nice to be able to understand some things like I always hated going into social situations. I'm I'm a very big introvert. I don't like being around the pressure of all of that. I don't like being in those settings or situations, but a lot of people viewed it as me being bitchy or me being, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to go. And now having this diagnosis, I can understand and other people can understand too. Hey, you know what? He's not being a bitch. He just is X, Y, and Z or his social meters out for the day, or he's not going to be able to do this, but he'll gladly be get back to you or text you or figure something out. And I think that having those moments, just having a diagnosis to be able to understand yourself more is the most important thing. Yeah, I was nervous as hell getting it. Like you just said, you were nervous going to the doctor for, you know, your vocals. You always expect the worst or you expect, hey, you know what? That answer is not going to help me. But it it can and it normally does. That's lovely, Joseph. Um, yeah, I think I think if today's episode had a theme it would be know thyself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obstacles don't prevent us from doing what we want to do in life. Would you say you're happy where you're at? <laughs> oh, 100%. And I, I will say to do just do a full circle moment, you started this show saying um, how you can get into a moment and it may be the biggest dream or something that you have and you need to be present. You kept saying the word present. And I have this new show out and I'm very excited about it, but it was a moment where I was sitting at this desk for this late night show and Katya was sitting in a chair and Katya was one of the first interviews that I ever did. And she turned to me and she said, so what does it feel like? And Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, when you interviewed me three or four years ago, I asked you, what do you want your dream to be? And you said you wanted a late night show. And she said, you're here right now and you're doing this. And she goes, what does it feel like? I had totally forgot, like, because my vision of things change as time goes. And, you know, you don't 
see things really the way that they are. And in that moment, I was like, she remembers she said this to me. She remembers the exact answer I gave. And yes, I am living this right now. I need to be present in this moment. And literally that I was like, I took a step back and I was like, thank you because I really needed to hear that in order to really respect and really appreciate where I was and where I am in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so much of life and adulthood is learning that everything's not how you imagined it. Mm -hmm. Nothing is, you know, like nothing. (laughs) Marriage isn't like how I was told it was going to be growing up or what I thought it was based on media. You know, my job, I love my fucking job. This is the job I always wanted. And lately I've been getting to do it at its fullest potential. I've been feeling like I've been doing my A-plus work. And even still, none of it is what I thought it was going to be as a kid. It's so much better because it's so much more real. Like, you know what's better about it is that it's not easy. And mm-hmm. it's and it doesn't come naturally. It takes work. And the work helps me appreciate the moments like you were just talking about. Especially lately when um, as someone who is, you know, really loving being sober from alcohol and really feeling like I have the best tools in my life more than ever before to be present in my moments and be present in the celebrations of my life. Um, You know, it's taken work and it's taken a lot of work, (laughs) but the work is why I feel so good now. If it had just happened by accident, think of the things I wouldn't have learned. Uh, if 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 things had happened any sooner than they did, maybe I would have been still drinking when these dreams came true. And maybe I could have not been appreciating or taking it mm. for the experience that it is. And for me, alcohol was preventing me from being present, but that's not true for everyone. But I bet we all can think of things that stand in our way of being present. And I bet most of us would agree that screens are a big part of that, our telephone. Um, So I'm going to wrap this conversation up with letting you all know that the do not disturb feature on your smartphone can be your best friend yes. at drawing boundaries. I am so serious. It's you, you, I mean, like it's not always easy to say I need to take this time without any incoming information, you know, mm. but when you give yourself those breaks, it makes such a fucking world of difference. You know, our phones have conditioned us to be okay with being able to be reached at any single moment. And I'm sorry, that's not how life works. <laughs> you need to have time where people just leave you alone. <laughs> Whether that's you to have alone time or time with a partner or time with a friend, I encourage everyone take the time to just do one thing and put your focus on one thing, whether that's yourself, another person, an activity, a hobby that doesn't involve your phone, or even if it is screen-based, maybe it's a video game that helps you relax. Um, 
I'm obviously a huge advocate for video games. That's what I do. Audiobooks, another wonderful yes. thing. Uh, you know what's really easy? Drying flowers. <laughs> I find that very meditative. Wrap them up with string, hang them upside down, you're done. Um, <laughs> Um, Joseph, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I really want to thank you for all the work you do. It has not been easy in the last six, seven, eight months for us to keep this um, <laughs> podcast going, but damn it, we've done it. And you are just always so gracious and patient and joyful with me. And I cannot wait to be a guest on Sissy That Talk Show with hey. Joseph Shepard um, as soon as I possibly can. And congratulations once more. Thank you. I and see I you're in my... Wanna... <laughs> well, no. well, you, you? Oh, you go. You go. No, I was no you, say... go. you go. You <laughs> go. You um, go. No, I just want to say thank you, too, because I think at the end of the day, you've all... you're have all you such a delight to work with. I love it. I love working with you. Um, so talented. And it's just also been so cool to see your whole trajectory from where we started, pandemic, to then All-Stars, to now Broadway. It's like... Okay, what's next, Miss Jinx? But it's really, it's been really great seeing your dreams come to life and come true. And I'm just so proud of you. Like literally, I, I'm like, I'm gonna need to get my ass to New York before March 12th. Is it the 12th? March 12th is yeah. currently my end date. So yes. Yes. Um, yes. And people keep asking. I, I don't skip matinees. I do absolutely every show that I possibly can. I've, um, like I said, I went to the doctor. I've been being very mindful so that I can sustain myself through the performances. I can't promise I will be in absolutely every show because we know life happens. But I am trying my very best because this has just been such a joy. And when you, you know, so many people have said to me, they are so happy to see my dreams come true. And this is a phrase that just kind of keeps mm -hmm. being said in my life because it is, it absolutely is. There's no, there's no way to call it anything else. Um, a very, very big life ambition and dream of mine has come true in a really astounding way. And I say this at the stage door when I meet the fans after every show, and I'm saying it right now, and I mean this as earnestly and sincerely as I possibly can. I truly believe this was a group effort. And I mean that as in the people who have supported me throughout the years. I've come to New York with original shows with major scales for the last 10 years. Peaches Christ and I have brought shows here. I've done so much in New York, and the audiences never stopped coming. The audiences were loyal. I, I, it makes me feel good about knowing what I've put into my work over the last 10 years, you know, knowing that I gave enough along the way that people kept coming. I have audiences mem audience members who came to the first showing of the, uh, the Vaudevillians and Laurie Beachman who were there opening night on Broadway. Um, I feel like this is a group effort because our community celebrates its own and um, supports its own. And this wasn't just me, Jinx Monsoon, living out a dream. And I feel very, very honored to get to be this, but it was also a lot of other things. It was also a drag queen playing a cis female role on Broadway. Um, I've said a lot about how Peppermint was 
the first trans woman to originate a role on Broadway. She was the first of the Drag Race Sisterhood to play on Broadway. Um, I want to also give a special shout out to Alexandra Billings, who is a fantastic advocate, speaker, actress. Um, she played Madame Morrible on Broadway. Um, so I believe she may have been the first trans woman to play a cis female role on Broadway. And I feel so happy and fortunate and honored to get to carry this torch and hopefully pass it on to the next person to take us another step forward in um, uh, inclusivity, representation, and sirens blaring outside my window. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, and of course, because I'll beat myself up later if I don't say it. Of course, in my production, Chicago, um, shortly before I came on, Angelica Ross was playing Roxy. And I think that's that says a lot about the production. It says mm -hmm. a lot about the way the, the places we're headed in representation and um, casting. It just feels like a magical time to be joining this this <laughs> industry as sirens blare outside my window. <laughs> Joseph. I have loved this chat. You have listened to countless people give the answers to the compulsory dun, 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 questions. Dun. Have you been thinking about this your whole life? Yes, this has been this has been my biggest biggest um, moment. I, I'm waiting for this. Been thinking about this. Well, then let's do it. I can't okay. wait to I can't wait to fulfill this dream for you. We're watching <laughs> Joseph Shepard live his dreams <laughs> right now. Joseph, who is your celebrity crush today? Ooh. Um, I would have to say for some reason, because they are just stuck in my head, it would have to be um oh. Oh, Harry Styles today. Mm. I don't know what it is. There is something about him today that I just feel like that's the moment I'm feeling. I'm sure I've talked about Harry Styles and the whole issue of gay baiting before, but mm -hmm. I feel like Harry Styles is a special case because is there gay baiting happening? Absolutely. Is Harry Styles a true ally? I, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Two things can be true. Um, I think... The fact that one of the most, like, beloved, uh, hunkiest, uh, sought-after pop stars of our era is, you know, happy to transgress gender norms. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's you know, we got to take that as a win, even if there's uh, elements of problematic gay baiting, queer baiting there. I did a whole monologue about this in my holiday show, most, mostly for laughs, but if you wanted to know how I really feel, um, <laughs> I feel like two things can be true. And the pictures of him in that pink tutu and the white tights, probably one of the sexiest things that exist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know why that really does it for me, but it's the pink tutu. There's something, and, and then just know he's so masculine in it, but he's wearing a pink tutu. It really, it really floats my boat. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna say Harry Styles is my celebrity crush today. I'm also gonna say um, uh, James T. Lane, who plays Billy in Billy Flynn in Chicago. 
I am just loving this cast. I can't say enough wonderful things about this cast, but um, James T. Lane came on at the same time as me. We had some of our rehearsals. He took over Billy. He's been in the cast before. Um, he was in the male ensemble, and I think he's done swing and cover roles. He's played Billy Flynn in other productions. I believe this is his first time playing Billy Flynn um, in this production, and he's just incredible. He's incredible. Um, and generous. He has these little moments throughout the show where no one else can see, but he gives me a little wink or a little nod. And it really keeps me in character and keeps me, what's the word? Present. Present. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, Joseph. Are you spiritual? I used to be, as I told you about, like the Southern Baptist thing. Yeah. I think I've strayed away from that. Do I believe that there's a higher power or high higher being? I think that there has to be something in order for all of these planets and everything to have existed. But I mean, I could be completely wrong, and maybe they were here the whole time. But I, <clears throat> but I'm here to figure it out along the way. So I know that discoveries will probably happen in my lifetime. <laughs> well, I guess the the alien gods don't want me to speak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the spaghetti monster is silencing you. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think that you know we'll we'll learn more within our lifetime, but we won't know all the answers. But I do think that there has to be something. Yeah. Who? I mean, people are always freaking out about spoilers. Like, <laughs> you don't want spoilers? Then stop trying to figure out yeah. what happens next and wait for it. <laughs> okay, Joseph. Are you ready for the final question? Yes. This answer better fucking blow my socks off, okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song? Stupid Ho by Nicki Minaj. <laughs> I am... <laughs> Assuming the ones that's the one that goes, um, uh, you a stupid hoe, you a you a stupid yes, hoe, yes. you a stupid hoe, you a you a stupid hoe. <laughs> you want to give us a section of your favorite lines to sing? It's always just the rap. It's I get it cracking like a bad bag. Bitch talking she the queen, but she looking like a lab rat. I'm Angelina, you Jennifer. Come on, bitch, you see where Brad at? And then I just go all at it. <laughs> And do you do it fully nude after you've suggested? <laughs> suggest everybody skinny dip. Yes. <laughs> Would not be surprised. <laughs> Joseph, thank you so much for being my guest. Of course, you can catch Joseph on Sissy That Talk Show with Joseph Shepard. You also, I mean, you're a producer um, mm -hmm. at the Mom Network. You work on multiple shows. What else would you like to promote? Oh, I, I just really want to promote the Sissy That Talk show. It's great every single <laughs> every single Tuesday for the next, I guess, two months. We have a great guest lineup. We have Cornbread, Adore, um, Willem, Alaska, Tammy Brown, Monet. Uh, Katya is the first episode that comes out today. So I guess if you're listening, this is Wednesday. So it's already out. Um, it's just a chaotic, fun, late-night show. Like, everything is very random. Very Z-Way meets Eric Andre. So I'm just excited to bring something a little different to the drag fans and the drag community. I love it. And I have, you know I have such a crush on Eric Andre. So oh. I, I love the Eric Andre show. And um, he, he, I've said it before, um, 
we just need more queer versions of things, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I, I don't care if something feels similar um, to something else or if you can tell that it was inspired by something else when it's like, okay, and now we have a queer version for people. Yeah. If you liked this style of talk show in other contexts, well, get ready because now we got a queer version of yes. it. Yes. <laughs> and I just love that. I think we need a queer, we need more options for everything. That's, exactly. <laughs> that's what I love about living in America. You can choose from 45 different fucking cereals to eat in the morning. <laughs> why, why not have 45 different fucking representations on any given network at any given Yes. Moment? Anyway, um, Joseph, thank you so much for being my guest today, and um, great job. I think I'll keep you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Your audition process is finally over. It's only been two years, but (laughs) you got the job. Thank you so much. And thank you all so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dogs and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at The Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hi Jinx. Oh. Mom! To listen to Hi Jinx one day early and ad free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio.